you would remain standing with me and open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to continue our study there in John's Gospel, considering what we just sang about, some of the, this deep, deep love of Jesus that lifts us up to glory. What's that look like? What's it supposed to look like? So this morning, John chapter 11, 1 verse through verse 16, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. The word of the Lord. Let's ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, in it today, may we see you. May we see what is most important about your love for us. And maybe even some wrong ways we define love in our own hearts, in our world. May your word and your spirit be a corrective today teaching us about your love and your glory, showing us what we truly need. Lord, without you, without your spirit, we will see none of this. So help us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. What difference does it make to, to know, to truly know that you are loved? What does that look like? Another thing that we could ask is, what is needed most when things go horribly wrong in this life? 
So on the first question, what difference does it make to know for certain that you are loved? It just rolls off the tongue, right? Because we all know the answer. We're good Christian people. We're in a church building this morning singing songs. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? It just rolls right out. On one level, it's easy and we catch it. It's familiar. There's nothing wrong with that, but do we realize what kind of love he loved us with? Do we, have we heard the last two chapters where this love is defined for us as God is a shepherd? Loving his sheep. Yes, Jesus loves you. If you knew that for certain, how would it change your life? Again, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus' love for his people. We are called by the Good Shepherd, we are cared for and provided for by our Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd, in fact, lays down his life for his sheep. The Good Shepherd, we heard last week, holds us in his hands. And in the hands of Christ, we are also in the hands of the Father, and no one can snatch us away. But can he be trusted? Does Jesus actually know what we're going through? Does he care that we're dealing with circumstances that might be too big for us? Does Jesus know that you're sitting in a pew this morning and you're in over your head? Relationally. Broken friendships. Struggling relationships at work. Horrible workplace environment. Trapped in addiction. Does, does he know any of this? And what difference, if he did, would his love make? On the second question, what, what's needed most when things are horribly wrong or off? We, we might say, well, dude, you need a doctor. Like, you don't need to come to me. You, you need to get to the, to the hospital quick. You need an ER. Yeah, oftentimes that's true. If something goes terribly wrong, get help. How do we see the, the love of God revealed when things are horribly, horribly off and wrong? And we see devastating brokenness in our world, in our own lives, in our friends that we simply cannot fix. What then? What if no ambulance or ER can help? Our text today provides an answer. It's easy to say and harder to trust. And it answers this way. What we need is a vision of the glory of God. That's what the text says. We need to see the glory of Christ in his word and in his providence in our lives. Just as our text has lessons to teach us about the love of Christ, it also is pointing the way for us 
as we suffer. So in many ways, we're at a, at a hinge in John's gospel. Chapters 11 and 12 are like door hinges. And so far in John, we, we've had this grand introduction, and then he just kind of dives into his life. And we see time after time after time, Jesus performing these great signs. And with increasing performance of signs and increasing uh, clarity about, from Jesus about who he is, you also have increasing pushback. Pushing back, pushing back, pushing back. All the way up till last week, the last scene, they hold stones in their hand to kill him. It is not good. And now we're going to go through this door and on the back end, we're going to spend a lot of time with Jesus at Passover. Much of the, the last section of this book is going to be dominated by what Jesus is teaching his disciples just before he dies. That's where we find ourselves. And here in 11, we see this ultimate sign. All these signs have been increasing, increasing, and hostility has been rising and rising. And now this ultimate sign and ultimate I am statement. And all of this, again, is transitioning us to the end of his life. The focus of our text today will be two main features love and glory, and then we'll see how the disciples pick up on that. The first one, love. So our text opens with a certain man who was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, and this is a different Bethany. There's a couple in the scriptures. This one is on the east side of the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. This is where Jesus will stay in his last days before the cross. We also meet Mary and Martha here. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. There are lots of Marys, right? You ever been around a, um, well, I won't say that. This is, this is a different Mary. This is a different Mary. This, this Mary has a sister, Martha, a brother, Lazarus. They live in this house together. We know they have some means. We remember from other gospel accounts that Mary and Martha were followers of Jesus. Remember the interaction in Luke chapter 10? Jesus comes to spend time in their house. Do you remember that? It's a, it's a really beautiful interaction because it's so human. He gets there and Martha's like, man, I got to make some casseroles. I got to get the, the bathrooms have to be spotless, right? I've got to go make all the beds. I got to sweep all the floors. I've got to mop. I've got to do everything. Jesus is here. Where is Mary the whole time? She's sitting with Jesus. She's on the couch, listening. And Martha, her head is about to blow up. And finally she comes and is like, don't you see all that I'm doing? Are you just going to let her sit there? You see all this sibling stuff going on. Do you remember this story? It's a great story. It's so human. And Jesus said that Mary chose the better portion. You could stay busy forever. You could always do things, but Mary has done the right thing. She sat here and listened to me. This is that Mary and Martha. 
Verse 2 tells us another important detail. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That Mary. It's interesting that he's saying this now in chapter 11 because in chapter 12, he's going to tell us about it. I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think this had become a well-known portion of Jesus' last days. And he's saying, this is the Mary. This is the same one. This is that place. It also, again, doubles down the relationship that Jesus has with them. To be convinced of John's point in this part of the passage, you have to be convinced of one thing. Jesus loves this family. He loves them. Listen to the message Mary and Martha sent to Jesus in verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying just this. It's not a long message. Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's a short, short email. We, We have to see, we have to frame everything that Jesus does in chapter 11 in love. That is vital or you will utterly miss what's going on here. Verse 4, Jesus responds to the summons, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is the other main theme that we'll see and we'll pick back up on this in a minute. In verse 5, now Jesus loved, here we go again, He whom you love is ill. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Put yourself in their shoes. They're desperate. Their brother is sick. You get a message to Jesus. Your beloved friend is sick. And he is somebody that you know, you believe, you trust can do something about the sickness. What would you do if you get this message that this loved one of yours is deeply ill on their deathbed? What do you do? You move heaven and earth to get to them and don't try to lie to yourself. That's what you do. You scramble and you get online and you buy plane tickets if that's what it takes and you get on that plane and you fly there and then you get an Uber and you drive to their side. That's exactly what you do. That's what I would do. That makes sense. Your loved one, one whom you love is ill. What does Jesus do? Notice verse 6. So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, again, you have to frame this in terms of love or you're going to miss it. When he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What's going on? Jesus knows how this is going to go. And he willfully stays He's being very intentional. This little word, so, is is the hinge for the whole thing. So, in Greek, hos. So, because, therefore, since, so that. He knew he was ill. 
Therefore, he waited two days. If we're really paying attention to what's going on in this text, this does not make sense. This should be bewildering to us. It defies logic. Because Jesus loves him, he waited. Because Jesus loved him, he did not go to him right away. What in the world is going on here? What is John trying to teach us? It's this. Jesus is totally going to redefine what it means to love. He's totally redefining what it means to love. And it's this, here's how. The highest and best way for God to love Mary and Lazarus and Martha and the whole world and you and me is for him to be seen. We think the love of God needs to be manifest in a certain way, and we think we know that way is best. And he says, no, the best way that I could possibly love you is to show you myself. Jesus is taking our small notions of love and what we think is best in any given situation, and he's utterly transplanting it with something much, much bigger. Could Jesus heal Lazarus? Absolutely. Does he even have to go there to do it? Absolutely not. Do you remember the ruler's son? Go home, your kid as well. He does not have to be there. He could do it in an instant. He's intentionally not healing him because he wants them to see the greater love. Listen, he knows that the loves of our heart are fickle. We want what we want. We define love the way that we want to receive it. And you and I would never choose the way of pain. We don't like to be hurt. We don't ever want pain. Jesus knows, however, that the most important thing that he could do for Mary and Martha and Lazarus and again for all his disciples there and me and you today is to let him die. That is the most glorious and gracious thing he could do. Because that kind of love reveals his glory. The same John will make it abundantly clear, 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God. And defining love, it is not our ability, it is not what comes from us first and foremost. If it's not that, what is it? But that God loved us. God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. By His atonement, His love, we are saved. So the question from earlier, what kind of difference would it make for us to know for certain that we are loved like this? What is love? You know the song? That was all the rage in school. I might crick my neck if I did the dance. 
What is love, baby, don't hurt me? Right? There's something true going on in that song or something that he wants to be true. Right? I see some bobbing heads already in the room. That's uncomfortable. <laughs> what is love, baby, don't hurt me? Love should never be painful. Shouldn't hurt. Is that Jesus' love? Is Jesus' love a painless love? Absolutely not. In the kingdom of God, we often see the love of God experienced by his people, not despite suffering, but through it. Time and time again, the love of God is on display for his people who are suffering. Just a few texts. We rejoice in our sufferings. Paul says this crazy thing. For suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. 2 Corinthians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort, comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. Philippians 1, 29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Matthew 10, I could go on and on. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it again and again and again. You will see the love of God as you suffer. Just because you suffer, child of God, just because you, you're confused about things in this life, that they're not going the way that you want them to go, just because you're struggling, even this morning, wrestling with yourself or with others, that does not mean that you are not loved by God. And we're tempted to believe that God just doesn't love us, we're invited to look to his pain. How did God prove his love? He sent Christ to live and die in our place. He did this out of love. So we've seen that Jesus waits because he loved them, because he wanted them to see him. But what does he want them to see? Verse 4 tells us very clearly what he wants them and us to see this illness does not lead to, lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So not only does he tell us that he waits because he loves them, it tells us that he waits because he wants to receive glory. That's where the whole story is going. Jesus is going to receive glory through death. Does that sound like a familiar theme? Remember the climax, the incredible intro to the gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In a sense, all of John's gospel can be said to focus on the glory of God and the person of Christ. And this is what Lazarus needs most in sickness. This is what Mary and Martha need most. They need to see the glory of God. 
They need to see God incarnate, God who had come in flesh, who had come to live in their place, to take their place, to take on their suffering in his own body. They need to see him. Think about Job. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time recently in Job. I encourage you, just go read it. It would be a great Sunday afternoon read. God allows him to be stripped of everything. All of his possessions. All of his wealth. His children. All of his children die. They're all killed in horrible, tragic accidents. His wife seems bitter. Job loses his health, welts everywhere, cutting himself, scraping himself with ashes and pieces of pottery. His friends offer their opinion that Job himself is the cause of his calamity. Job, if you would have just had it together more. If you wouldn't, clearly, Job, you've sinned. You've done something to deserve this. Job has his head left spinning. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. He's demanding an answer for God. He, he, he does not know what's going on. Why all this suffering? And it's the same answer that we just were reading in John 11. God does answer him. He answers him from a whirlwind. After he had lost it, all God gives him an answer. And we can sum up the, the answer that goes on chapter after chapter in one word. And do you know what that word is? Glory. God says, I am big and I am God, and Job, you are not. He points him to his weight, to his beauty, the size, weight, and measurement of the earth. He points him to the heavens, the measurement and boundaries of the sea itself, the rising and the setting of the sun. He points him to a snowflake and to ice. Job, good luck making that. The constellations in the night sky, the appetite of ravenous lions. He points them to goats and donkeys and oxen, ostriches, horses and hawks. The simple answer that God gives Job is the very answer that Jesus wants us to see in chapter 11 through the death of Lazarus. And the answer that we need is glory. It's God himself. He asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Where were you, Job? 
the answer we need, the answer our hearts need, the most loving answer God can give any one of us, whether we're suffering now or suffering in the future or past, no matter where we are, is his glory. He wants us to see him. He wants us to know his righteous weight. He is the one who matters. On and on God goes, revealing his glory to to Job. This is the only thing big enough to hold this man up. He has lost it all. And God says, I am the one you need. Glory gives corrective lenses. It's like these glasses allow me to read the words on the page. Glory allows us to rightly see who we are and see who God is. That's the vision that Mary and Martha need. It's the vision that you and I need. This is exactly what Jesus is doing with Lazarus. He will sleep the sleep of death, but it will not end in death because he wants all the onlookers to see, including the Pharisees, the Jews, the people that want to kill him. He wants them to see glory. The most loving thing God could do to us in suffering is to show us himself. And this vision of glory for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus, death itself will be swallowed up in victory. Not the resurrection of Lazarus. He will eventually die again and turn to dust. But in the resurrection of Christ himself. So far we've seen that Jesus delays healing his friend because he loves them. And because he loves them, he wants them to see his glory. There's so many ways that this applies to all of us. So many of us, in big ways and small ways, life is out of control. What do we really need most? It's not better control of the situation. It's not marshalling all of our resources and then I could just fix what's wrong with me. It's a vision of Christ who loves us. And that the highest and best achievement of that love for us is to show us himself. We need to see him. So how did the disciples handle the whole situation? All they know so far is that his friend is desperately ill and that Jesus hasn't gone to him. And they know that two days have passed. Then they hear Jesus say, okay, guys, it's time to go back. It's time to go to Judea again. Bethany is obviously a a village in the region of Judea, this central portion of Israel. Also, Jerusalem is there just a couple of miles from Bethany, and they know well what's going on there. They want you dead. This is a suicide mission. Verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus, you have a death wish. This is crazy. Why should we return after having waited two days? Why go now and risk your life? Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. There's a couple of layers here. One is 
uh, very easy to understand. Look, we work while it's light. This, this era in history didn't have shift work. There weren't lights and electricity to run various shifts. You couldn't run 24 hours. When it was light, you did your work. When the sun goes down, you were done. That's what Jesus is saying, right? And he's already told us he's the light of the world. Look, the light is shining. We have work to do. That's why we're going. Jesus is also teaching his disciples. Right? All the way down to you and me. As long as I am living, you have work to do. Let's go. Let's do that work. Followers of Christ... Jesus is risen. He is alive. While the light is shining, we work. To clarify this work that Jesus intends them to do, he tells them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to wake him up. The disciples don't understand again. They say what is logical with someone who is sick and taking a nap. What do you do? You let him sleep. That's what the disciples say. He's sleeping. He'll wake up. He's sick. He needs to get his rest. He'll be fine. They misunderstand. Jesus has to clarify. Verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. That is the result of his waiting. He waits two days and his friend dies. And for your sake, Jesus says, and this is crazy. What does he say next? I am glad I wasn't there. This is kind of like that so that we saw earlier. It's upside down. It's love defined by Christ, not what we want to have happen. I am glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. What is the result of the love of God and the glory of God? What is the, the purpose of the whole book? So that we might believe. Gladness in death. Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. And every single one of us who are in Christ will receive this gladness of Christ. Who clearly delights to raise his people from the dead. He knows what he's doing. He is not caught off his guard he is not on his heels. Every single part of this is intentional. He is loving them. Can we understand this kind of beauty and glory in death? I came across while studying for this, this, this really interesting um, note by a mathematician from the 18th century. His name is John Venn. And he wrote this note to a friend about his wife. Listen to this. Quote, I have some of the best news to impart. One beloved by you has accomplished her warfare and has received an answer to her prayers and everlasting joy rests on her head. My dear wife, the source of my best earthly comfort for 20 years departed on Tuesday. He gets it. He gets it. That's the worst possible thing. And he's not denying pain. Jesus is not saying this is, isn't painful. He's not doing that. 
He's saying the greater vision and the greater glory that you and I need to see are His love, His glory on display in our hearts as faith, as we believe in Him and rest in Him and trust in Him. That's what we need. So Jesus is pointed to Jerusalem and Thomas says, let us also go with him that we may die with him. We know that Jesus is in fact going to die and that many of his disciples will later die in his name, not yet, not Thomas. John gives us no account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's not here. No, Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey, triumphant, triumphant coming in as a conquering king. No palm branches, no stones crying out, no shouts from a crowd. He gives us none of that. This is his triumphal entry right here. My friend is dead, and I'm going to go raise him. This is Jesus' triumphal entry back where all his enemies wait to kill him. Hostility has been rising all through this gospel, and now it's going to come to a head. He's going to perform this miracle, and they're going to, dominoes will topple, and he will end up on a cross. And in that, he will give crystal clear proof that he loves us. There is perhaps no greater place to look than the cross and resurrection for the glory of God on display. This is love. This is glory. This is weight. This is what matters more than anything else that we could ever learn or see going through anything that we're going through in our life right now. The greatest thing that we can see is this love, is this glory. So have you seen this love? Have you tasted it? The utter glory of God? It changes our perspective on life. Habakkuk reflects on this. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. It says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You know what he's saying? Starving to death. This is death. Though all that be true, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He, he caught a glimpse of the glory of God. He knows what is highest and best in the love of God for him. Do you know that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Would you help us again to see what is highest and best, to see your love, to see your glory? Lord, we're all to one extent or another going through difficult times we do our entire life. 
We think we know what is best in those times. But we're reminded here by you, Christ, that what we need most is you. Even as we wait on you, Lord, give us hearts that trust, hearts that believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.